Good morning, church. And yes, it's uh, good morning, Living Hope Lakeport. Let me just say one thing about that. I probably should have said it last week. As a church, um, it's official. We are Living Hope Lakeport. But as far as the state is concerned, we're not there yet, okay? So we have our feet in two worlds a little bit. And you think about, well, who do I make the checks out to? Or how do I get onto the webpage and all that? Still, it's Evangelical Baptist Church. And soon here, as we make this transition over the next few weeks into a month, um, we'll let you know uh, when that is absolutely official with the Secretary of State, okay, and all of that. So just needed to tell you that so that you're not confused around that. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, as was just read to us. You know, there was a man who was um, being tailgated by a stressed-out woman on a busy street. Suddenly, just in front of him, the light turned yellow, and he hits the brakes. The woman behind him goes ballistic. She repeatedly honks her horn at him. She screams in frustration in no uncertain terms. She rants, and she gestures. While she's in mid-rant, someone taps on her window and she looks up and sees a police officer. He invites her out of the car. He even takes her to the station where she's searched and fingerprinted and put in a holding cell. And after a couple of hours, she is then released. The arresting officer says to her, you know, I'm very sorry for this mistake, ma'am. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you, cussing a blue streak at him, and I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Choose Life license plate holder, the Follow Me to Sunday School window sign, and I noticed the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk, and naturally, I assumed you must have stolen the car. (laughs) You know... The watching world is kind of tired of the Christian bumper stickers and the fish signs and the John 316 posters and the Christian jewelry around the neck and the Christian music from the cars and the Christian sayings on the t-shirts, but don't actually live the life of Jesus. Our behavior speaks volumes to our beliefs. Critics to Christianity point to a lack of credibility. Let me ask you this question. What is the best way to impact others for Christ? What is the best way to impact others for Christ? Well, that's what we're looking at this morning as we continue in our series, Living on Hope, from the first letter of Peter. And so if you're not there, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Head towards Revelation. Come back a few and you'll have it. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be picking it up in the verses that were read for us, verses 11 through 17. Now, Peter here calls his readers and us to hopeful living in a world that does not embrace what we believe. Peter here addresses how we can live in a world that is hostile to our beliefs. Now, I want to remind you for context's sake of our time last week in verses 4 through 10. Peter uh, spent in those verses considerable time reminding these scattered Christians of their true identity. And we left off uh, last week in verse 10. 
Now, as we come to verse 11, Peter is transitioning from his words about our true identity, who we are in Christ, to the heart of his argument, how to live as the people they really are in Christ, because our beliefs should form our behavior. Scott McKnight put it this way. He says, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so they can be who they are in society. Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so they can be who they are in society. And that's our focus for this morning. What I often do and I like to do when I can is is give give you the takeaway up front, and I'm going to do that again this morning. And it's simply this. When we live as the people we are in Christ and society, we give credibility to the gospel. When we live as the people we are in Christ in society, we give credibility to the gospel. That's how we impact our culture. All right, my first heading this morning is the tension. Attention, there's a tension that exists here uh, that if, you, if we are a people belonging to God, the next logical question is how do we relate to the people outside? What kind of people should we be? How do we live out who we are before a watching world? Peter answers that. Verse 11. Verse 11, 1 Peter 2. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, there are two words Peter uses here to describe them, um, which seem to be the same, but there's a slight different meaning from each other. Uh, One word he uses is the word aliens. Some translations say exiles. It implies uh, that the person or people uh, lacked citizenship in the land where they were living. That meant they lacked certain rights and and privileges. That's the one word. The second word, strangers, meant uh, resident alien. In other words, uh, they, were, they, were those, uh, they were those who, who literally lived alongside the natives. And it described those who might have even lived in that place for a very long time, but yet didn't fully belong. It's kind of like how some Mainers uh, view those who have lived there most of their lives, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but they weren't born there. They're still considered outsiders, not true Mainers. That's kind of what's going on here. They're they're strangers. And so Peter's point here, it seems to be, if we are true to our identity in Christ, we may never feel at home here in this world. It doesn't mean we don't care what, what goes on in our culture, nor should we get all cranky about it. It's a time for influence. We see we don't we don't own our culture, but 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 we are to kind of move into it. And we ought to make a difference in the world. Now, here lies the tension. We are strangers in this world at the same time we are in this world. We are strangers in this world at the same time we are in this world. Now, for centuries, the church has had to wrestle with that tension. And as typical of human nature, Christians bounce to one of two extremes. Let me go talk about those two extremes. One extreme is to be isolated pack, separated from the world. And they, and they set up these high walls that you, to, even to get in, you've got to kind of get past those high walls. And the common practice really is complete withdrawal. It's all really about keeping people in line and attack the culture from a place of total separation. 
The extreme of a separatism, living in this protective bubble apart from the world, and exclusivity is one way some Christians choose to relate to the world. Well, there's another extreme we go. And that's the flow with the mainstream so that our beliefs don't really matter. All that matters is love, love, love. All you need is love. And so you relate to the culture through assimilation. So instead of living with our boats in the water, the water is in the boat, and soon we find ourselves sinking rather fast. See, this extreme is is we become absorbed into the culture. We, We participate in all the same things as the world's. Now, on this side of things, Peter states explicitly, look at the end of verse 11, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. We are to be different. But I want you to notice where lies the primary battle there from the end of verse 11. It's not all the external forces he addresses here. The world's all messed up. I just need to stay away from the world and I'll be fine. No, the battle is where? Within us. The flesh. We are to abstain from our sins of choice. You see, anything that's in rebellion against God is of the flesh. And every day, our struggle really is against the flesh and the spirit. And the clear instruction here is to abstain from those things to which we are vulnerable. Abstain. Not not see how close to the line we can get without crossing it. Abstain. At the age of of 22, John Wesley, well-known in the Christian community, but at the age of 22, he was wrestling with some matters related to Christian conduct, as many of that age often do. And so he, he wrote to his mom, Susanna Wesley, and he asked this, her this question, what is sin? She wrote back, sin is whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, who takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, she says, whatever increases the power or authority of the flesh over the spirit, that thing is sin for you, however good it is in itself. (laughs) Wow, how would you like to have her for a mom? You might not ask another question. But what is it that has increased in power and authority of your flesh? I mean, what's that for you? It might be different than for me, probably is. What are we to do? Abstain, show restraint. Now, our society applauds uh, abandoning restraints. One of the biggest issues we face as a nation is poor impulse control. So slowly, incrementally, our own souls and the life of the church today are in danger of being overcome by unrestrained instincts because we're told the message and we've bought it, just do whatever feels right to you, don't worry about all the rest. It's been said the swift wind of compromise is a lot more devastating than the sudden jolt of misfortune. And so there's way too much water in the boats, and yet we've grown accustomed to it. We've been trained by our culture rather than the Word of God so that we give in to our desires rather than resist them. And Peter's so concerned about how we relate to the world that he addresses this matter of Christian conduct that must begin with what's going on on the inside. All worried about out there, no, right here. I got enough to work on right there. For we are to be different. Now, what if we were different 
yet maintained our beliefs while engaging the culture? What if we were different, yet maintained our beliefs while engaging the culture? All right, Paul kind of goes there. Uh, Yeah, Paul. Peter actually goes there. And the principle here, verse 12. Look at me, verse 12, the principle. He says, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, we're to live in such a way that not only abstains from the bad stuff, but by actively doing good stuff. Now, let me just address something here in this verse. When the verse speaks of God visiting, the end of verse 12, it could be referring to the final judgment. I don't think so. I think it might be better to translate this, a day he visits rather than the day he visits, because there's no definite article uh, in the original. And my guess is, is that this day of visitation is best understood as any time God visits the heart of the unsaved and works on his heart. That seems to be the context here. That that changed person now will willingly and voluntarily glorify God because they saw your good deeds and came to salvation. That's what I think it's saying. And do you see what this is saying? The single greatest tool for evangelism, then, is how you live. It's doing good. It's doing right. Principle is that when we live as the people we are in Christ and society, we give credibility to the gospel. After all, how will those in the watching world ever believe in the transforming power of the gospel when they have yet to see the life of a transformed person? One philosopher said, show me your redeemed life, and I'll be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. See, the bottom line, evangelism, church, is not only what we say, but also what we do. Joe Aldridge, a pretty kind of a famous quote from Joe Aldridge, put it years ago now, years ago. He said, Christians are to be good news before they share the good news. The music of the gospel must precede the words of the gospel and prepare the context in which there will be a hunger for those words. He asks, what is the music of the gospel? It's the beauty of the indwelling Christ in the everyday relationships of life. Jesus said something similar in his greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and Matthew 5, 16. He said, let your light shine before men. Why? That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It isn't simply live an upright life morally, but doing good, serving others. And in a world that takes shots at us, in a world that finds all kinds of fault with the church, listen, be different. Be different. Don't get on the defense. Serve. And in that day, in that day that Peter's writing here, in the Roman Empire, their view of Christians would be that they are exclusive in believing that Jesus is the only way. And then their reasoning would be that if you believe that Jesus is the only way, you'd be terrible citizens. That that if you have exclusive beliefs, you will lead an exclusive life. And the preconceived idea of Christians in that day is that they would be bad for society. (laughs) Well, it's changed. No, many feel the same way about the church today. Many view Christians this way, that we are bad for society. What can we do about it? Well, for some, it won't matter what we do. 
But that's not a reason to seek to silence them. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the passage. But how do we silence their accusations? Get on the offense, attack, pull away, act just like them? No, no. Do good. Be the best citizens around. Be far more loving, be far more accepting than the pagan. Reach out to the poor, serve others. See, we have to be radically different in order for the world to notice. Mildly different or worse, acting like the world won't cut it. Now, so, so do you see the tension that exists in living in our society? It, it, it's critical we get this right. Because when facing our critics, we're not to go in fight mode. When facing our critics, we're not to attack. But neither do we withdraw or disengage completely or assimilate. So, so the principle is when we live as the people we are in Christ and society, we give credibility to the gospel. We are to do good. So on this one hand, we're aliens and strangers in this world. But on the other hand, Peter will go on to speak of our being citizens in this world. He says that in verse 13 of our duty to submit to every human authority. We now look at the practice of this principle. The practice of this principle. And I'll tell you right up front, I, I definitely bit off more than I can chew here in, the, in looking at the next few verses. But I think we'll get the gist of it. If you stay with me, we'll get it. Peter's now going to give a case in point. Actually, he's going to give three case studies in the larger section of chapter 2.13 through chapter 3, verse 7. He's now going to work out that principle and practice in society. And verse 13 says, these are our favorite words, submit yourselves. We, we just get warm fuzzies when you see the word submit, don't we? Like, oh, that's, oh, this is good. I'm happy now. Now, submit means to rank yourself under it's a, it's a military term to arrange in military fashion under the commander. So he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And so we are told here to submit to the governing authorities. Well, that was easy in Peter's day. No, no. At the time, Peter wrote these words. The emperor was Nero. I mean, some suggest it was Claudius. But both were evil men and, and had a disdain for Christians. The empire was not a pro-Christian monarchy. It, if it was in Nero's day, and I believe and likely it was, he was known to be particularly cruel toward Christians. And I, I could give a lot of examples of that. and You can just research it yourself. But there's a tough society for them to live in to practice Christianity. And part of the taxes that the people uh, funded pay, uh, were for pagan temples and unjust wars. See, Rome was not a Christian-friendly empire. And so the things said here are written in times of turmoil and rejection, and yet they're commanded to submit. And immediately, I know what's happening right now. I know, Pastor, but what if? I mean, I can give you a suggestion. Do we submit then? I have a lot of things going through my head right now, Pastor. Please address them. Well, I don't know if I'm going to address all of those, but let's take a little stab at it here. The what if questions. Now, Peter is clear 
and his instruction to submit to those in authority. Yet you will recall that Peter, on at least one occasion, recorded for us in, in the book of Acts, he dis disobeyed the authorities. And so this submission does have its limits. When Peter and John were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, Acts 4, verse 18, they chose to obey God rather than them. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, Peter and John answered those in authority by saying what? We must obey God rather than men. You see, we ought to completely submit to those in authority unless to submit to that authority would be to disobey God. We had to completely submit to those in authority unless to submit to that authority would be to disobey God. Now, church, we have to be careful on this one. We mustn't make every issue and inconveniences to our faith that exemption. I don't really like where they put this red light. Huh, it's kind of inconvenient for me right now. I mean, that's a kind of a lame one, but we have them. And furthermore, when civil disobedience is the right thing to do, we must also live with the legal consequences of that decision. Okay, but what about in our country where we have a democracy? Yeah, we, we do live in a democracy, and which means we do have responsibilities toward government beyond simply submission. We can and should voice concerns, support good legislation, oppose what we believe to be immoral. We just have to find that balance of doing that in love. Listen, I hope you don't take issue with this. If so, don't email, email me about it. But listen, we are more Christian than we are American. We are more Christian than we are American. Now, you have to work that out. Our first allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And that's why we have a theological basis for our submission here. Look at the beginning of verse 13. It says, for the Lord's sake. And just as we may have to disobey for the Lord's sake, also our obedience should be for the Lord's sake. We, we submit to human authority because we know that it's been placed here by God. That's hard to work some of that out. We submit to man's authority because we trust in God's established order. And by that submission, we are telling the world that we believe in God's sovereignty. That we're trusting in it. It's a witness to the world that we believe that God is in control. I haven't always demonstrated that. See, a worry communicates what? A lack of trust in God's control. How can submission to authorities make an impact in society? Peter gives a reason for that in verse 15. Look at this. Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And you say, well, I want to know what God's will is. Here it is. Not something mysterious, hidden, waiting for you to unlock it. God's word tells us God's will. What is his will? God's will is, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. You see, we need to quit giving ammunition to critics of Christianity, and we need to put a muzzle on them. Now, I say muzzle because that literally that's what the word silence means. It was used to speak of muzzling an animal. It's the idea to stop the mouth so that there's nothing else to say. Just gag them. 
It's a strong word in the original. We're not to give the world any reason to slander Christianity. In those days, in those days, the Christians were being accused of loyalty to a different king. That they wanted to overthrow the government. That these believers were subversives. And by their submission, by doing good, by taking the high road, they would muzzle the mouths of those false accusations. The accusations wouldn't stick. We're to be about silencing the critics. And notice the way we silence them. What does the verse say is the way to silence them? Argue with them? Win a debate with them? I'm not saying there's never a place for that, but what is he saying is the best way? Verse 15, by doing good. By doing good. How are we doing overall in silencing the critics of Christianity? Former Boston Red Sox Hall of Famer, third baseman Wade Boggs, Used to hate going to Yankee Stadium. Wade Boggs didn't care for the Yankee Stadium, and not because of the Yankees. They never really gave him that much trouble because of one fan. That's right, one fan. This fan had a box seat close to the field, and when the Red Sox were in town, he would torment Boggs by shouting obscenities and insults. It's really hard to imagine that one fan was getting under a player's skin, but apparently this guy had the recipe. One day before uh, the game, as Boggs was warming up, the fan began his typical routine and, uh, you know, yelling things like, Boggs, you stink. I think a lot worse and harsh than that. Boggs decided he'd had enough. He walked directly over to the man who was sitting in the stands with his friends, and he said to the man, hey, are you the guy who's always yelling at me? And the man said, yeah, it's me. What are you going to do about it? Wade took a new baseball out of his pocket, he autographed it, and he tossed it to the man. And then he went back to the field to continue his pregame routine. The man never yelled at Boggs again. In fact, he became one of Wade's biggest fans at Yankee Stadium. Now, I don't know. I doubt that he did that for the Lord. But what an example of doing good to silence the critic. It's amazing how the critics of Christianity can be silenced by righteous life and maybe a a godly response. And sadly, our behavior all too often in the Christian community has only fueled the fires of the critics. I mean, let's be blunt. Be it the infighting, the immorality, the scandalous conduct of well-known Christian leaders, the chameleon-like living, the dishonest business practices, the poor work ethic, the hateful protests, the unkind words, condescending attitudes, our bigger buildings and many appeals for money, crooked practices, behaving as though we are above the law or ripping on the church or grumbling through life. I mean, do I really need to go on? So much of what Christians are doing isn't helping the cause of Christ at all. It's only making matters worse. And you've walked into those situations. They go, oh, what anything to do with you? A bunch of hypocrites. Upon entering a little country store, a stranger noticed a sign that said, Danger, beware of dog. 
danger, beware of dog. And it was posted on the glass door as you went into the, into the store. Inside, he noticed a harmless old hound dog asleep on the floor near the cash register. He asked the store's owner, is that the dog that folks are supposed to beware of? Yep, the proprietor answered, that's him. The stranger couldn't help being amused. That certainly doesn't look like a dangerous dog to me, he chuckled. I mean, why in the world did you ever post that sign, beware of dog? Well, because, the owner replied, before I posted that sign, people kept tripping over him. (laughs) Very interesting. And I ask, do people have to trip over me to get to Christ? Am I making it hard? We need to lay a platform of credibility. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I believe the majority of unbelievers are not looking for perfection because they know you aren't. What are they looking for? Authenticity. They're looking for genuineness. They're looking that you're credible. So instead of giving them more and more reason to criticize us, let's leave them with nothing to say because we're about well-doing. We must look for opportunities to turn people's heads in a good way as we serve, as we take the high road of loving our enemies, saying, here, here's a baseball for you, and stepping up to do good deeds among our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers and friends and family and classmates and those we pass by each day. Because there are many who are throwing all kinds of accusations at you. They're throwing all kinds of accusations at the church, They're throwing all kinds of accusations at the God you believe in, hoping to discredit you. But you can prove them wrong. We can make the gospel believable. How? By handing them some book, tell them to go over there and check out some church. Now, the verse tells us very clearly, by observation, they see your good deeds. They see that your life backs up what you're saying. And church, that's the most convincing argument. Are you, am I, living a life that makes our evangelism believable and witness by submission for the world to see? See, just because you've been set free doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want. Peter gives a qualifier there in verse 16. He says, live as free people, yeah, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. See, it isn't oppressive to obey God. It's actually freeing but we're to never use our freedom for a reason to do wrong. It should never be an excuse for disobedience. And Peter then fires off four commands in rapid succession that I'm just going to just be able to touch on briefly. I told you I bit off a little more than I can chew here. But I really see verse 17 as a summary statement. He says in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. See, it covers all spheres of life. Now, I want to camp on the first phrase just for a moment here. Show proper respect to someone, few people, most people, everyone, really. Now, in that day, there were, there were many who were slaves, and as slaves in a lot of cases anyway, they were not considered to be people worthy of respect and honor. They were property. So to show respect to everyone was very radical in that culture. We, can, we do the same thing. We can treat people as a means to an end. 
You help my cause. We can see people as, as numbers or, or projects or interruptions or, or things. And, and when we view others as existing for my pleasure or to make my life more comfortable or make my life more convenient, are we not treating them as objects, things we are to have respect for everyone? When evangelist Billy Graham was in the prime of fame and influence, author and pastor Gordon MacDonald was an unknown student in seminary. And yet, one day, Gordon MacDonald got an opportunity to meet uh, the famous preacher, and, and through the experience, he learned something about treating others with respect. And Gordon MacDonald writes this. He says, when I was a seminary student, I had my first chance to meet Mr. Graham personally. My introducer said, Billy, I'd like you to meet Gordon MacDonald's. Gordon McDonald says, I was a 24-year-old, scrawny, somewhat unpromising kid, struggling to pass basic seminary courses, and I was one of many being introduced to Billy Graham. And what do I remember about that moment? That Billy Graham fixed his piercing eyes upon me. He extended his hand, and he said, Mr. McDonald, it's an honor to meet you. Mr. McDonald, Gordon says, he addressed me as if I was a peer or someone superior to him. Oh, the dignity of the moment for me. For the space of about 10 seconds, he connected with me, and it seemed as if the two of us were the only people in the room. He says, for weeks I bathed in that awesome moment in which this extraordinary man poured value into me. Such a tiny encounter, yet such an unforgettable moment. What did Billy Graham do that Gordon McDonald remembered the rest of his life? was respectful, honored him, respected him. And what if we treated everyone with respect and honor? Yes, that person in ratty clothes. Yes, that elderly person who's in our way. Yes, that new worker behind the counter slowing up your day. Respect to that family member who has a different political viewpoint than you do? I know, now I'm meddling. <laughs> Move on. But you see, how we treat each other inside and outside the church presents a witness to the watching world. We belong to God. God owns us. He owns how we respond to government. He owns how we respond to him. He owns how we respond to others in all spheres of life. What is the best way to impact others for Christ? When we live as the people we are in Christ and society, we give credibility to the gospel. You know, there's an old saying that if you ask a Mennonite if he's a Christian... If you ask a Mennonite if he's a Christian, he will say, ask my neighbor. In 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a sermon of the gospel by Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon... A response was given by Red Jacket, who was one of the leading chiefs uh, at that time. And, and among other things, that, that leading chief, he came up. He said, Brother Cram, I heard you. And we're told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. 
Mr. Cram, we will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good and makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider what it is you have said. In other words, I hear what you say. I want to watch your life. Let's be intentional in how we live our lives that by doing good, we silence the critics. See, our living ought to make our evangelism believable. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words that are God-breathed. is isn't just Peter sitting down one day and say, I have some things I want to say. If it is, then we wasted our time this morning. And if these are just my words, again, we've wasted our time. These are, these are your words breathed out from you. We have here exactly what you want us to have, and I pray we take that to heart this morning. It's hard living in this world today. Yes, we can become so discouraged about society and about the direction. But I pray, oh God, that you would keep hope alive in our hearts that we may be positive influences in our society. For your sake and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.